Hi, I am Jada Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair here on WORT. And I have a request. Madison Magazine is running their annual Best of Madison competition. And I need you to go nominate A Public Affair as the best podcast Madison has to offer. All you have to do is go to tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Nominations are open all throughout this month, and you can nominate us every single day. Now, the actual voting doesn't take place till June, but if we're not nominated, we can't be voted on. So go nominate us. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Thanks so much, and I'm so excited for everyone to know that a public affair is the best podcast in Madison. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. We are talking today with Daniel L. Hatcher. He's professor of law in the University of Baltimore's Civil Advocacy Clinic and author first of The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens. He's a former Maryland Legal Aid and Children's Defense Fund attorney. He has long been a scholar, advocate, and teacher on poverty and justice. And we are here today to talk about his new book, Injustice Inc. and put a dollar sign there on the S. How America's justice system commodifies children and the poor. And uh, Daniel, thank you for joining us today. And let's start by uh, asking you to explain the title, Commodifies. Sure. And, and thank you so much for having me on the show. As, as Pleasure. To be here. The um, commodification is unfortunately the necessary theme in this book you know from all what i uncovered in, in my research um it's revenue mechanism after revenue mechanism in which our all our institutions of justice our our courts our juvenile courts family courts criminal courts prosecutors offices attorneys general um probation departments um, policing agencies right detention facilities and jails are all contractually commodifying um, vulnerable citizens, children, and the poor. Yeah, which um, that is um, all that your book is about. And it's just um, stunning um, to find out just how much uh, poor children and poor families are commodified, how much money is being made out of terrible things like removing children from their homes. So uh, you say that the juvenile court started a strategy in 1996 to make money when removing children. What? Right. Right. No, and I, I agree with how you described this. It's, it's um, 
striking, right? you know, strikingly concerning. And, and I, I believe in the ideals of justice, right? You know, I, I believe in striving for that, for those ideals and all of us in the justice systems have to pursue that ideal. So um, when through my research and my advocacy, I encounter um, failings systemically, right? Not just a bad result in a, in a single case, but when the entire system is monetizing who they're supposed to serve, I feel driven to uncover that. The example you describe, um, um, I use Ohio as an example, but it's multiple state juvenile court systems um, that are doing this. They actually enter contracts to generate revenue when children are removed from their homes. So, so the way it works in Ohio, the juvenile courts have entered these what are called interagency contracts. They contract with the executive branch agency for the courts to become the foster care placing agency. Right. And that in itself is so concerning when you think about it. You know, the courts are actually we're, you know, the whole reason there was a revolutionary war in this country was to escape tyranny. Right. And, and uh, the founders, when the structure of our government here was created, it was based upon a separation of powers between the branches and our judiciary. It's, it's such a crucial part of the structure of our government that our judiciary be independent from the other branches. But here in the Ohio Juvenile Courts, the judiciary is contracting to become part of the executive branch in order to make money from child removals. And then when you go further, how it works, so the courts can, you know, they put on their court hat, right? And then they rule that a child is delinquent. Um, then they put on their agency hat and decide on placing services where the child should be removed to, right? And for how long the court puts its court hat back on again and rules on itself. And if it rules on itself favorably, it can generate more money. So there's basically an incentive to separate kids from their families. There's certainly an, an incentive um, to um, process more children, right? Either on child removals um, in the Ohio courts, or there, there's the alternative where they can also label them as a foster care candidate, right? And that in itself can be concerning. Like, uh, you know, initially, like the idea of getting more services to families who need them is, is, is a good thing, right? It's crucially needed. But if it's financially incentivized for the court's probation departments to process children, um, you know, assign them a probation officer, you know, with immense power and constantly process them through the system, even if they're not removed yet, a constant risk of removal, then that causes even further harm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the question in my head is, is there no oversight? But it sounds like who will oversee the whole judicial system, which, by the way, I have to say, you, you keep calling it the justice system, and, and that's a word that I stopped using a long time ago. I really say the judicial system because i think there's very little justice there i understand you know and i i, I mean the label of, title of my book is injustice right Inc. um and i will say like i i hope our judicial systems become justice systems again yeah. right yeah. like you know because it does fall to all of us in the systems to be um ethically true to that mission Right. You know, it has to start with us. And then and then, as you indicate, you know, outside to, to, to monitor us. And it is a challenge when you have courts reviewing themselves and their own actions. Right. Then who's reviewing the courts? Um, and that's just so deeply concerning what you're seeing here. And you, you see it in other examples um, across the country. The other reason the reason I do use 
justice systems more generally as I'm talking not just about the courts, but also about the prosecutor offices, right? You know, and the policing agencies and probation departments. And what I found is, unfortunately, as you go from, you know, institution to institution, they've joined the commodification practices, right? Each one of these sort of divisions of the justice systems have their, their own individual um, commodification schemes, but they're interlinked with all the other systems. So children and families who are pulled into the system often don't stand a chance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I was thinking about that as I was listening to our motto for the show, no change without struggle, no one in power and giving up nothing. And um, I was thinking about how poor people really don't have a lot of time to engage in struggle. Right. Um, life is very hard when you're poor. And um, it seems to me like you are, I don't know if you're the only one who, who actually points out the terror that is going in the system, which we'll be talking about momentarily here. But um, I don't think there are many. Um, I, I, I did not know just how um, huge this machine is and, and how much money there is to be made out of uh, people living in poverty and in misery. Right. Those are, those, those are uh, unfortunately very good comments, right? You know, accurate comments, you know, and I wish we were in a different state of things. But, but yes, you know, like often those who are targeted are the least able to have a voice, um, to, to push back and, and, to, and to fight for um, impartial justice, right? And when you're talking about, you know, the low-income population, you know, and these various revenue mechanisms that I uncover in the book, um, it's both that they are low-income and if it's on the civil side of things, they often don't have access to any counsel or if they do, it's, it's a, an office that's overwhelmed in, in terms of numbers, right? Um, and then... Many of these systems are confidential, right, in themselves. Like, so we're talking about, you know, the juvenile court monetization practices, uncovering this information for a journalist who might want to write more and uncover some of the stories about the individual children who are pulled through the system. These in most states are very much confidential systems. So, you know, the, the, the harmful revenue schemes are hidden behind a cloak of confidentiality. Which adds to... <laughs> the outrageousness of everything that you're writing about it's um really hard to take um then what, what how many numbers are so-called processed through these courts well i mean it depends on the court and you know tens of thousands you know and that's a good question as well because it you as you read through some of the court annual reports um, budget documents and the like, it sounds like you're reading more of a, almost of a presentation to private investors, right, for a for-profit firm rather than an institution of justice. And some of these Ohio juvenile courts, you know, it's tens of thousands of children that are processed annually, often with just one actual judge. And then they have other non-judge, judicial masters, magistrates, they call them various things and, and different jurisdictions right, who will help with the processing, um, it becomes a business structure. And not only are, are they having the, the courts as part of the judicial courts, they're also in Ohio, the juvenile courts also run the probation departments. Many of them 
operate their own detention facilities, right? Many of them, you know, although they're supposed to be independent child advocates, many of those child advocacy programs report to the judge, right? Many own their, run their own schools. And I, I've seen hiring documents, hiring ads, you know, and it'll be an advertisement for a teacher and it'll explain the teacher serves at the pleasure of the judge, right? You know, so it, it's become a business. And that's what I'm, you know, as another theme that I've been so concerned about in my research is, you know, again, what I've, what I've discussed, what we've discussed, this mission of justice is so crucial, but our institutions of justice are not just partnering with private companies, but they're taking on the mindset of private companies, right? They're, they're shifting to where they're operating as a factory business and monetizing the individuals they're supposed to serve. Yeah. So we had uh, Dorothy Roberts here a um, couple, three months ago about her book Torn Apart, which is Wonderful. about um, children who end up in the foster system. And um, she told us some of the stories of um, how children end up being torn apart from their families. And it all makes so much more sense when you understand that there's a lot of money to be made. So she told us, for example, the story of this one woman who was at a picnic with her two kids, and uh, as she was caring for one of them, the other one just kind of took off. Didn't, didn't get very far, but got far enough. They were black. Got far enough to where a white woman called the police. And, you know, before the police got there, the mother got there to take her kid back, but the, the white woman won't let her do it. The police ended up um, taking the kid, coming to the house, um, arresting her, um, then of course taking both kids to foster care because she didn't like um, these police just coming into her house. And um, years and years of uh, her fighting and losing her job and getting very sick from all of that. And, um, yeah, so there's all these agencies in the way that were making money out of it. And, um, yeah. <laughs> right. No, I, I mean, Dorothy Roberts, is such, she's an excellent scholar and advocate. And, and you know, for your listeners, that book, Torn Apart, is, is, a, is a crucially important read if, if you haven't already read it. And, and as you indicate, you know, the stories are just so heartbreaking and, and frustrating and angering, right? You know, like the harm that's happening. And then when you realize it's not just as harm and disproportionate harm, right? Racialized harm is occurring um, to so many children and families, but the harm is monetized and in multiple different ways, you know, like, you know, like it's our, and much of these practices date back historically, right? You know, so, and a lot of this isn't new, unfortunately, certainly not the, um, the, um, racially unequal treatment in these systems, right? But the monetization practices keep growing and they've become more and more um, modernized, right? Over, over time and technology. Um, and again, as we talked about at the beginning, most people don't realize what some of these um, machinations are. You know, it's like this, these machines of the factory that are processing use in families, right? It's, it's almost like a you know, like a factory assembly line, but think about it in the reverse, like a disassembly line, right? You know, it's it's like they're deconstructing already struggling individuals for every penny they can make from them. 
Yeah. And well, you mentioned that it is very much a racialized um, system. And really, as I read through what you write and Dorothy Roberts and, you know, just look at the world as we know it here in this country, um, I'm thinking that uh, slavery never really ended. It just changed um, form. You talk, for example, about um, work programs that... Um, kids and adults are forced into. You say that um, kids just as young as 12, year, 12 years old um, are forced to work to repay court-ordered fees. Can you, can you expand on that? Sure. And, and um, uh, again, that's uh, uh, what I view as an unfortunately excellently accurate description, right? You know, when you, when you think back upon our, on our history and, and where the commodifications commodification practices come from. So um, work programs um, are often ordered either as a part of the probation departments or the courts um, directly, sometimes sheriff's um, departments, um, and they can be both um, inflicted on both juveniles and adults, right? And to start with, it's so striking, like you're forcing people to work for free. And then on top of that, often these, 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 justice institutions right the sheriff's departments the the probation departments the courts are generating more revenue by charging fees upon the people to work for free so it'll say like you have to go work for free and do and do these really incredibly hard tasks and you have to pay us to do it right you know and, and often this will be a part of probation as you indicated with the pursuit of fines and fees and you know the courts will order fines as part of a, a minor misdemeanor case or maybe just a traffic case things like that it might start out not too large but certainly large for someone who's low income maybe 500 600 but then balloons quickly very quickly after additional fees and interest right and collections costs up to you know thousands of dollars um probation department will take control and they'll start adding probationary requirements of services that the individuals have to go through work programs, right? For example, like they'll, they'll force people into free community work, charge them to do it, charge additional fees on top of that. And then those probation departments often will consider the full payment of all the fines and fees that are racking up, right? In an unaffordable, unsustainable way that you have to pay all those fees off in order to be taken off of probation. So a condition of probation will be the full payment of all that. So it's so it's unescapable for the individuals, the children and adults that are pulled into those programs. So if you can't pay it, you go back to prison, your kid is separated from you forever. What happens? That's certainly the risk, right? I mean, I, you know, at best, you're staying on probation forever, like and continually harm financially. But the probation officers, you know, they have the ability to recommend revocation of probation. Right, which can mean back into either a juvenile facility, right, or for an adult into a, a, a prison, right. And um, sometimes, as you indicate, these probation departments are also contractually enlisted in the foster care side. They're generating federal 4E foster care funds. So, like the courts in many states are monetized, where the more children that are pulled into the system, more the more foster care revenue the, the courts can generate same with the probation departments and then many of those probation departments are then actually recommending termination of parental rights um as you indicated you, you look to the prosecutors the prosecutors have some of the same 
contracts, right? Both with 4E funds, federal 4E funds and federal child support funds that are supposed to help um, child support agencies, but it said the courts will use that as a revenue source, right? And then, you know, it's just financial incentive on top of financial incentive, right? In terms of um, pushing towards not just child removals, but from permanently severing um, the, the parent-child relationship because money, right? You know, like it's, 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 a, it's a, a financial, financially incentivized process. Yeah. My guest is uh, Daniel L. Hatcher. He's a professor of law in the University of Baltimore's Civil Advocacy Clinic and a former Maryland Legal Aid and Children's Defense Fund attorney. He has written two books. We are talking about his uh, latest, Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. You're welcome to join us if you have questions that are relevant and you haven't called in the past seven days. 608-256-2001. You can join us also on social media at Work Talk on Twitter or a public affair on Facebook. So um, you say that they make money out of um, placing kids in foster care, or I think you suggested that even before placing them, just making them candidates. And I, again, these words, you know, but right. um, there's money to be made there. Explain. There's, you know, what, what this, the institutions are finding, there's money to be made almost everywhere, right? As long as they keep pulling the low-income individuals into the system, right? So you start with that, you know, like you have, you know, um, this tension, and it, and it exists with many nonprofits as well. You know, agencies that exist to serve also seek to exist, Right. You know, and then here you have this circumstance where, you know, the courts in order for their business operations that we talked about, like the size and how many cases are processing, how many employees they have, the probation departments, you know, some some like the Los Angeles probation department is huge. You know, like it's um, for to keep operating, to keep running that business. They need the commodities um, to process through the system. So they keep pulling them in. And with foster care for example like that it's what it is is it, there's there's big streams of federal funds that are intended to be used to help right they're intended to be used to go towards agency to provide needed services um and too often you've seen these contractual arrangement right with the various institutions of, ju of justice have found ways to tap into that money and instead of focusing on using that money to help right to provide needed services they're focusing on using that money as a revenue source for themselves. They've shifted onto the wrong side of that tension, serving themselves, using individuals to serve themselves rather than existing to serve the vulnerable individuals. And as you just indicated, that even happens before um, removal. Um, and again, you know, like, you know, having services available to struggling families can be really, really crucial, right? But if instead the systems are financially incentivized to simply label right, a child as a foster care candidate in order for that agency to, to generate as much revenue as it can, can it, it shifts the purpose and can cause harm. And what's so striking is like you're seeing, like you start digging into these numbers and you understand how much money is, is being, how much they're using the children to pull down this money. It's not just using the children to claim revenue from services, it's administrative costs. 
Um, they're using children to fund overhead, right, for the entire court system, for probation departments, for prosecutors, you know, down to, you know, paying salaries, fringe benefits, travel, trainings, um, paying for depreciation of actual court buildings, right? You know, you, know, you name it, you know, and they're going to be using these children in order to pull down money, right, to pay for their own overhead. Okay, so um, two questions uh, regarding what you just said. Um, the first one is, um, if you are an innocent, you probably think that not-for-profit organizations are good organizations that are doing things not for profit, but for the good of humanity, um, which I'm not an innocent anymore, unfortunately. But... Um, in this case, you know, it goes back to that earlier question that I asked you, whether there are other people like you who are um, exposing and who are talking against the system as it is. And, of course, if the nonprofit organizations are involved in making revenue out of kids who are separated from their families or, you know, families that are struggling, they certainly don't have an incentive to try and change the system. Do they? Uh, unfortunately not. And, um, you know, as, as you indicated before, as other people who are working um, to improve these systems and uncover the harm, you mentioned Dorothy Roberts is a great example, right? As, as somebody who's doing just outstanding, you know, work throughout her, her life's work of, of scholarship and advocacy. And there are many other um, scholars and advocates doing such crucially important work. We need more. Um, and we need um, the information um, to get to um, the individuals who have the ability to change things, right? To change the mind of our elected officials, to change the minds of agency leaders, you know, of the heads of our court systems. So I, I think, you know, like the work that you all do, you know, like with having a show that, that provides the information to the public, increasing awareness is the first step and it just couldn't be more important, you know, along this process, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, as well, like I love the introduction to the show and the theme, you know, it's, it's a long fight, right. You know, like, but, but we have to persevere and, and we need the tools, right. In order to work towards not just change, but the right change, right. You know, like, and, and that all starts with understanding what the problem is. Yeah. So that brings a third question, but let's go to the second question. Um, which so so you said that I was going to ask you what what is this money I mean what is done with it and and you gave a list of at least part of the things that it's paying for and um, I'm wondering isn't that the role of government to make sure that we have courts and that they are well staffed and that the people there get paid and uh, that. Um, Police departments are well and good staffed, um, and and that the secretary there can make you know the the, the monthly uh, check and so on and so forth. Why do we need to commodify humans to pay for these things that are basically public stuff? I, I couldn't agree more with that question. The premise of, of the question, right? You know, um, we to the extent that the funding level um, should exist and, and should be at a certain recommended level, right? That funding, whether it's for our courts 
our policing agency, our prosecutor's offices, probation, um, uh, various forms of detention facilities or residential treatment, right? Our funding for government services needs to come from a neutral source, right? That is solely incentivized by the mission of that agency. So if you're talking about a justice institution, the funding source, right? And if there's any incentive built into it at all, it can only be for the incentive of the pursuit of impartial justice, right? You know, so uh, unfortunately across the country, and this is, you know, it's more striking often in the more conservative jurisdictions, but it's certainly happening in, in, in red states and blue states alike that we're not raising sufficient necessary revenue through fair means of general taxation, right? So the response by some of these, human service agencies and justice institutions will be to look for the money themselves. Right. And instead of then they've, they've gotten to the point where instead of, again, making sure they're only existing for their mission, they're turning it completely on its head, looking to those that they're supposed to serve and using them as a source of funds. Mm -hmm. And the harm that comes from that is just immeasurable. It turns the purpose of government on, on its head. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about some more examples of how the whole system makes money. So uh, one way is that um, courts, I think, or county, you tell me, are operating their own juvenile detention centers and that uh, children, as you say, as young as 10 years old are incarcerated. What? Right. No, unfortunately, like in one of the chapters in the, in the book and, you know, to be candid, was was really difficult to write, you know, because as you're researching and, you know, you're reading through example after example after example of, of how, you know, children and vulnerable adults are literally just treated like bodies in the beds. Right. And you read all this data, all these all these numbers of what's happening and and you 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 pause and remember every number is a child. Right. You know, to who this is happening to. And and, you know, you have the situation where towns now are, are turning towards considering juvenile detention facilities sort of as a town factory instead of a, a plant that, you know, produces, you know, furniture or something. Right. You know, any any kind of production. Right. In terms of that would also supply jobs. Right. And a tax base and revenue for the for the county or for the town, they're looking to juvenile detention facilities. And, and you're seeing um, competitions over those facilities, almost like a small scale competition that happened with, you know, Amazon headquarters too. when you saw all the states and cities trying to fight over, you know, where that location would be. You see locations competing over the placement of a new juvenile detention facility or a new juvenile jail or a new residential treatment center called different things, you know, but all very similar goals of, of holding, right, you know, of, of bodies in the beds. And these facilities, the way they make money is a very simple, but just a harshly inhuman strategy of you maximize occupancy, right? You maximize the bodies in the beds and you minimize the cost of care, right? And then you can make more money. And, and, you, and I, like I use an example out of Victoria, Texas and the county judge talked about the juvenile detention facility there as such an important revenue generator <laughs> for the county and look at it, you know, because the, the, the tax base had been declining because the revenues were declining because of a um, um, lowering numbers of property taxes, right? They say, well, but the good news is we're making more revenue by detaining children, 
you know, like in, in this process. And I've even seen numbers, you know, where they, they set quotas, right? They'll have a contract with the neighboring county, right? To agree to jail their children. So, but you have to send us a certain number of children, right? In, in order to have this deal, right? They'll talk about their, their revenue goals. And if we don't have this number of children imprisoned, we're not going to make enough money, right? To be a revenue producer for this county. And you, you, I, I had an example out of Maryland, right? Where I found sort of the preliminary documents that were planning for a new juvenile um, detention facility, uh, a big one. And there was an economic study done, you know, how many jobs are this going to bring in? You know, how much money is it going to bring in both directly, right? In the ancillary services from their, the people that are working in the juvenile jail, you know, they're buying stuff around the town. Um, and there was a, an economic um, a study done, an economic tool that they used in which they compared the jailing of children to a factory producing automobiles. That's right? exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the outrage, because then they must arrest so many kids so that their body can be put in these institutions. That's right. And then, you know, and these, I mean, these small, you know, you start with an individual institution and this could be either a government run institution. There are many um, nonprofits, as you indicated, who are, who are now running these various institutions, sometimes residential treatment centers, right? There are religious organizations in many states. If you have a, what's essentially a detention facility that labels itself, say, as an academy or a residential treatment center and then claims a religious purpose, now they can escape all licensing and regulation requirements, right? So we have no idea, you know, what's happening in this facility and, and they're generating revenue from the kids. Um, and then, you know, when you have the for-profit, you know, interest entering the picture, it can start relatively small, maybe, a, you know, a company that has, you know, a handful of, of facilities, they're purchased by a larger company, right? That in turn is purchased by a larger company, is purchased by a larger company who's traded on the, stock market, you know, and you see investment banks, you know, that, that are literally trading, right. And children housed in prisons, right. You know, it's, it's just, it's like you said, it's, it's, it's disgusting when we stop to think about it, but I think too many of us don't stop to think about it again. Like we, we can almost become numb to the numbers, right. If, if we're not careful and we can forget that each number is a human being. Well, I think, before we can even think about it, we need to know about it. And um, it's, I, I don't think it's known. I, I really appreciate very much both your work and, and your books because you are bringing it to our attention. And, you know, then again, in turn, we can bring it to the attention of our listeners and, uh, uh, you know, maybe put it on the agenda to some degree. But I have to say, you know, we have these towns here, of course, in Wisconsin, where they have uh, detention centers of various uh, um, kinds. And um, we the, the, uh, there has actually been a scandal about the juvenile detention centers up north for both boys and girls and how tremendously abusive they are. And um, so that was a scandal for a minute. And since then, have I don't know how many years have passed with talks about uh, creating smaller detention centers closer to people's homes and um, and 
the kids are still there and they're still being tear gassed and uh, so on and so forth. And again, it brings also the racial aspect because most of these kids are kids of color and they're way up north there where you won't find a person of color if you look for them, you know. So the people who are basically abusing them are white. Yeah, no, these are crucial points. And, you know, when you look across the country in some jurisdictions, like you might find that the the percentage of of black individuals living in a particular county around 20 percent. Right. But then if you look at the juvenile t- detention facilities, it's 70 percent, 80 percent, sometimes 90 percent. Right. You know, that are black youth or, or other children of color that, that are pulled into the systems. And as you indicate, like, the, you know, there has been some some good um, local journalism that that have uncovered harm that is that has happened in a variety of facilities across the country. But the the challenges then, as you indicate again, people forget, right? You know, are they are they put it off to the side? But the problem doesn't go away, you know. And and even if there has been positive movement um, when, when we're talking about these various detention facilities away from say state prisons for youth towards more community based facilities. But that has created, right, uh, growth of additional potential harms, not just potential harms, actual harms and opportunity for private companies, nonprofits to kind of swoop in and monetize. And and too often what you're seeing is less, unfortunately, even monitoring happen in these type of facilities. Right. So even though, you know, there, there can be room for improvement. Right. We have to be cautious of opportunists coming in and looking to profit from the harm rather than serve right the needs right again there, there's that constant tension that's there well and the system reproduces itself because you take kids you separate them from their parents you put them in abusive situations of course they will end up having serious ptsd they are more likely to behave in ways that uh will get them incarcerated again they are black or brown and so that by itself is a strike against them and there you go more prisons Yes, you know, it's, it's such a harsh reality for the individuals impacted by these systems. You know, foster youth suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, right, PTSD, at twice the level of veterans of war, hmm. right? And, you know, and for, for many of the foster youth, you know, the, the trauma doesn't end, you know, after, you know, a period of deployment. You know, like, you know, you know it's just ongoing, both in the removal, they're pulled into the system, they're moved from one group bump to another, and then they're impacted by often the, the school disciplinary system, the criminal justice system that they're pulled in, and that trauma follows them into adulthood, right? You know, so they can't escape. And then every one of these agencies, institutions that's supposed to be serving them, right, is instead using them and making money from their trauma, right? So it's just, it's, it's unbearable to, to understand how this is happening. But as you indicate, I, I think we're, we we have an obligation to know, right? And, and to bear witness and to understand what these practices are, then work to engage in that long fight to fix things.
Yeah. My guest is Daniel L. Hatcher. We are talking about his book, Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. You're still welcome to uh, join us at 608-256-2001 or on um, social media. And uh, Daniel, we'll get into the last part of the show, and I, I, I would like to... Uh, Um, demonstrate some more how the system makes money. Uh, how do prosecutors make money out of that? How do police and sheriff departments make money? What, what are their uh, revenue streams? Right. Well, there are many for, for, for both. So, so if we saw, say, like with sheriffs and, and policing departments, Um, I've, I've uncovered similar contracts where it could be the sheriff's department policing agencies. Um, New York has, um, uh, you know, what they call city marshals um, who aren't even city employees. Right. But but they through the revenue that you generate from um, pursuing the poor, um, the average net um, income that the city marshals in New York are pulling in is over four hundred twenty thousand dollars annually. Right. You know, through pursuing fines and fees. So but also with sheriffs, they'll have contracts with child support contracts, you know, the 4D system. And most people don't understand that much of what we call our child support system, the title 4D child support system is only pulling in mostly poor families. And much of that is about even though it's called child support, it's a debt that's being pursued to pay back the costs of foster care if a child is pulled into foster care. Right. Or welfare if a family has needed temporary assistance or Medicaid. Wisconsin, for example, will, will even label on birthing costs from from Medicaid costs and pursue low income individuals, forcing them to pay back those costs, not to pay to the children. Right. But to pay back to the government. Right. And then there are contracts. There are these interagency contracts with the courts in Wisconsin, with the commissioners. Right. Um, with all those sheriffs. Um, I've seen contracts in multiple jurisdictions where sheriffs will literally make more money the more arrests they carry out, right, in terms of warrants that are issued to haul people in um, for failure to pay child support. So incentivize arrests. Sheriffs are also making through money through, again, this pursuit of fines and fees across the country. They're, they're often in, in most jurisdictions, they're getting literally a contingency fee, right? Almost like, a, you know, like in they, some places they call it poundage or a commission Right. And uh, sometimes up to 10 percent or more. Um, mm. And so they're incentivized. The more um, collections they pursue against poor people, the more money they can make for the sheriff's department. Prosecutors have some of these same, unfortunately, incentivized contracts. I've, in Wisconsin, I've seen I've seen contractual arrangements where um, prosecutors are incentivized and they generate more revenue if they're pursuing termination of parental rights. Right. You know, like so it's so striking, like it's issue after issue as you see into this. And I've said there's some contracts I, I uncovered and I believe it was one of the examples in Michigan. If you look at the actual contract with the prosecutor's offices, there's a there's an equation, a fairly complex equation that that unpacks how they're paid through this contractual arrangement. And the way they're paid is they get more money if there are more children removed from their home because they can claim Um, their costs against a percentage and that percentage is determined by how many poor kids compared to non-poor kids that are removed from their homes and placed in out-of-home placements so they have a direct incentive not just to remove kids from their home but to have poor kids removed from their home right? and that will increase the ability to claim revenue mm. 
Yeah. Well, um, we suddenly have three callers, so let's um, see if we can get them all. Um, Diane, you're on the air. Good afternoon to both of you. I just started listening about 10 minutes ago when I came in, so maybe you've answered this question. But I am curious to know if the staff who are abusing these children in these centers have had any kind of training, if there's any kind of program to help them change their attitude, to do some modification of them. It's a great question, and and, and it's important because, unfortunately, when you look at these um, uh, facilities across the country, especially those that are have the profit motive, but not just, you know, also some nonprofit, right? Because their incentive is to, they want to maximize occupancy, the number of, of kids, the number of bodies in the beds and minimize costs, right? Then they don't have an incentive to have highly trained, highly paid individuals working there. They want to have as little a staff as possible, right? Often the training is not adequate and often they use um, tools that are so harmful in themselves, seclusion, or other restraints, right? Um, chemical restraints, right? In order to um, reduce the cost. If you, if you have a child that may need some more um, services and instead you just seclude them and essentially lock them up in a room, that's a lot cheaper than having trained staff there, there to deal with it. Yeah. <sighs> okay, Steve, you're on the air. Yeah, hello, Ms. Denor and Mr. Hatcher. Thanks for awakening a middle-aged non-parent with no prior knowledge or even interest in this subject to its existence. Is the origin of kinder commodification the altruism of individual professionals and social services or merely the inherent tendency of bureaucracies, both corporate and governmental, towards self-perpetuation? Thank you. Oh, is it even... I mean, is it something else? Are we going back to slavery and, and so on? I'm going to answer yes, yes, and yes. You know, like, you know, like there, there can be layers to what's causing this. So, so I, I think it's an interesting, good question. And I do think there are times where you have organizations and individuals, you know, that start out with um, what I would argue is a good mission, right? And they might start out ethically true to that mission, and then they lose their way, right? You know, as they're starting to turn towards running like a business, right? Rather than providing that service, it can shift. And that shift can be sometimes gradual until they've forgotten why they exist, right? Sometimes that can happen with nonprofit organizations. I mean, there are some wonderful and crucial nonprofit organizations. And then there are some where that whole non and nonprofit is really non-existent, right? They're, they're, they're using harm to fund their own organization rather than serving the cause, right? To prevent the harm. So I think that's a great question. And also like with the, the inherent um, sometimes bureaucratic issues with government agencies, um, the profit mission when it comes in with the, with the, either the, the government agencies contracting with private partners. But again, what I described earlier, I think, you know, a big part of this is not just the partnering with private companies, but it's when a government institution, whether it's a justice institution or a human service agency is becoming like a business. And you heard that mindset. We started hearing a lot in the 80s and the 90s. You got to run like more like a business. You got to become more efficient, right? And and I see that like in the juvenile court documents in Ohio, it's all about efficiency and revenue. That's not why they're supposed to exist, right? They exist to serve the pure mission of providing justice to the individuals who are brought before their institutions, right? And they've lost their way. 
Yeah. Well, Mike, you're on the air. Listening to your show, all I can say is just wow. Right. Just wow. <laughs> um, Esty, I could I could almost see your jaw dropped at the beginning <laughs> of the show when your guests named off all the culprits who are involved in this. And your guest still, he hasn't even mentioned yet, for-profit private health insurance or health carriers involved with this process. Because if you seek any services, you have to participate in this health care system where they interrogate these children, tell them they have to take these drugs and these medical products all for this great amount of money. And if you don't agree with that, then all they do is report you to these same people. And then you, to defend yourself, you have to pay all these expert uh, uh, health uh, expert witnesses. Um, one thing I recently found out that so many families that I know of are struggling with, right now they are requiring 72 different vaccines for children, 72 doses, and only to find out that pediatricians receive like a $40,000 bonus based on the number of people that comply with this. Mm-hmm. But anyway, thank you to your guests. What a brave man. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mike. And um, Daniel, before you respond, I want to um, squeeze in our last caller, and then you can respond to all and see if there's any more time for my questions. Uh, Lynn, right. you're on the air. Uh, yes, I was wondering uh, if you've already covered some models or some places where it's somebody's got good incentives that actually have uh, outcomes that are working for the families and the kids and everyone else. Yeah. And I know we've got problems, but I'm looking for solutions. And that's thank you for that question. That's really the perfect question to to end the hour with. So go ahead, Daniel, with, with both of these questions. Sure, I, I I appreciate both those questions and and the you know, the the prior caller regarding some of the healthcare monetization that's happening. And in my last book, the poverty industry, you know, I, I wrote a lot about how Medicaid is is often used instead of providing the necessary healthcare services for individuals who need them. Right. Our various county human service agencies are treating Medicaid as a revenue source, again, for the for general coffers. Um, there are maximization and diversion schemes with Medicaid and, and the billions, uh, uh, unfortunately, that, that, that needs to be clamped down on. With, with uh, you know, good examples are, are how do we start solving um, these problems? It's both a, a layered, complex question, but also very simple, right? Because it really comes down to mission and ethics. Right. You know, having that mission of being, you know, we talked about like, you know, is, is it really a justice institution or a judicial institution? You know, like, you know, to have that pure mission of the pursuit of equal and impartial justice and then being ethically true to that mission. Right. As a good example, you know, and this took advocacy. Right. Like so um, I it's a challenge to find really excellent examples that are always happening on their own. But that's a part of humanity as, as humans are a bit of a mess right you know so we have to keep working and together and making sure we're moving in the right direction towards that mission but also in the last book I, I wrote about how foster care agencies across the country have been pursuing children in their care who are either disabled or have dead parents 
um, and then applying for and taking their survivor and disability benefits. Literally, literally the agencies that exist to serve and protect some of the most vulnerable among us, right? And then among that population, those children who are disabled or have deceased parents taking their money from them, the agency that is supposed to protect them. Um, so, um, you know, in part, in part of like shows like yours and, and other press um, that, that we've been able to get for the issue and, and my research and, and, and partnering with advocates, we've now been able to get multiple states to move forward towards stopping that practice. Um, Maryland was the first state that we worked on, and it was a five-year process, right? And starting, we actually started with, um, who's now Congressman Raskin, he was a state senator um, at the time when he introduced um, the bill that I, that I helped draft in Maryland. You know, it took five years to, to get that through. Um, and, and now though, over 10 states are working in that same direction. Um, I've testified before recently, two more cities um, at the city level passing ordinances to stop that harm and to realign, right, that mission again. So, so that good change is possible. And I, I'll say too, like the, the strongest voices throughout that process, you know, for, for your listeners are the people who are impacted by, you know, with, with, that, with that strategy, with that effort to try to protect foster youth's resources, right, you know, for themselves, the strongest voice was former foster youth who stood mm. up and testified and spoke to policymakers, right? And their stories are what caused the policymakers to change things in the right direction. Well, that's so good to know um, that that they got their voices heard and that change can happen. Though I'm thinking, you know, it took five years in one state. How many kids were victimized during these five years? And you change one thing, right? You didn't change the whole system. So, um, but yeah, the la lucha continua, huh? The the struggle continues. Struggle continues, absolutely. Yes. Right. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Daniel L. Hatcher, for your work and for your uh, books. Daniel is professor of law in the University of Baltimore's Civil Advocacy Clinic, author of The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens, and more recently, Injustice. Inc., how America's justice system commodifies children and the poor. And he has actually worked um, in this area. He's a former Maryland legal aid and children's defense fund attorney. Thank you so much again, um, Daniel. And yeah, onward. Thank eh? you so much, Esty. Yeah. And thanks to Summer and Jade and Patty. I'm Esty Dinor. Be well. Bye bye. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded.